If you guys will turn in your Bibles to Psalm 8, we're going to continue our series walking through the Psalms this morning. We're doing that all summer long. Um, uh, Last week or the last two weeks, David preached on Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, and he pointed out that Psalms 1 and 2 sort of function as like the gate that swings wide and opens and walks you into the rest of the book of Psalms. Psalm 1 and 2 establish for us who God is. They establish for us how man is to relate to God, what wisdom looks like in light of the fact that God rules over the whole world, what, what's wisdom look like for man, what's foolishness look like for man. Psalm 1 and 2 gets you started in the Psalms in a really, really good way. Psalm 8 is likewise very fundamental. It's super, super simple. And so it's going to continue this process of sort of like our introduction uh, to the Psalms as we go through the summer. Will you stand with me? I'm going to read Psalm 8 for us. Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray together. Father, your name is majestic, it's glorious, and the whole world needs to hear that and know that. And so will you give us... Um, a real sense of that reality this morning, and will you give us a longing to believe it more deeply and truly to take it with us to the ends of the earth. In your name we pray. Amen. You guys can be seated. So we also said, uh, David said, I think both weeks, that one of the interesting things about the Psalms is that they're poetry, which makes it a completely different kind of literature than all the different kinds of literature you find in the Bible. It's not narrative, doesn't look like the stories in the book of Exodus where you watch the people of Israel kind of enslaved and then we read a story about them leaving slavery, going into the wilderness. It's not like Jesus' parables, which are kind of little mini-narratives that give you a better sense of the life that Jesus is calling His people to. They're not like Paul's epistles, which can be dense diatribes describing fundamental tenets of Christian doctrine. The Psalms are poetry. They're totally different than all those things. And they call you to something much more like an apprenticeship. We don't have apprenticeships by and large anymore. Nothing. Well, I know we have them sometimes in our, in our world, but those were very common, of course, hundreds of years ago. And the Psalms call you to believe the things that they say and then just simply to embody the life that you're watching the psalmist live. The psalmists don't merely give you new things to believe or think about God, but a way 
to think about those things. A posture, maybe, to think about them in. The Psalms call you to an apprenticeship. They call you to take up the life of worship that they describe. So this morning, in Psalm 8, that's exactly what we want to do. We want to be apprentices of Psalm 8. We want to say, what's the posture that David is dwelling in here as he pens this exuberant declaration about the glory of God in all the earth? How's his posture before God, and how is that something that we can embody? And so the main thing, really the only thing that we want to say this morning, it's simple, is that God is majestic and glorious in the praise, honor, and sacrificial service that He gets from men and women who are weak. He made the world with effortless creativity. He defeats His enemies with the strength of infants, and He rules the world through broken men. So in Psalm 8, this is why God is majestic. It's that simple reason. God's majesty is on display because He does amazing, brilliant, remarkable things in His own right in in creation. But then that goes out and He does more amazing things through broken and weak men. So my first point this morning, you get it from the very first and last verses of this psalm, is just simply... God is a supreme, most amazing being in all of existence, and He means to be recognized as such. Now, we said that the Psalms are poetry, and that's true. And most of us abandon the study of poetry in high school at the latest. We don't, poetry is not a form of literature that we walk with through most of our life. And why is that? Generally, the reason, I think, that we abandon the study of poetry is because so often it's difficult to understand, and that seems to be the very exact opposite of its purpose. You would think that poetry, which is supposed to be heightened speech, it's supposed to communicate something, the poet wants to communicate something to you, and he wants to communicate it to you in a beautiful way and therefore give you an emotional sense of the thing he's trying to communicate. It's supposed to be heightened speech, but what happens when you read poetry? You read it and you say, I don't get this at all. It's obscurantist and odd and dense and just difficult to wade through. Psalm 8 is poetry that does the exact opposite of that. It's poetry that tells you its very main point at the beginning and at the end so you don't have to get confused. It's not poetry that wants to be subtle or obscure. It's poetry that means to be explicit. So what does the psalmist say in the first and last verse of the psalm? O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now that's a simple statement. And you may read that and say, eh, you know, What's there to say about that? There may not be much. It's simple, it's straightforward, but we can at least observe one thing. Look at your Bibles, look at verse 1 and verse 9. And you have the word there, Lord, written twice, right? You have it twice, O Lord, our Lord. Now look closely at your Bibles and the font of the first time that the word Lord is used And then look closely and see the kind of font that's used the second time the word Lord is used. It's different, right? The first time the word Lord is all capitalized, and it's like 
in 10 font or whatever. It's in like a mini thing. It's miniature even though it's all capitalized. And then the second time the word Lord is used, it's just simple, capital L, capital or lowercase o, lowercase r, lowercase d. Well, there's something very significant about that. The psalmist here is taking the first word Lord, and the first word Lord is not a title. It's the name of God. It's not a title. The second time he uses the word Lord, it's a title. The first time, it's the name of God. It's the word, you maybe you've heard it before, Yahweh. That's the name that God gave to himself in the book of Exodus. So what this is doing is like when you remember in elementary school and you had a kid that sat next to you, say in third grade, and all he ever did when he tried to get the instructor's attention is say the word teacher, teacher, teacher. And the teacher said, I have a name. It's Mrs. Smith. Please don't call me teacher anymore, right? That's exactly what's going on here. You would say a translation in that context would be to say, oh, Mrs. Smith, our teacher, your explanation of subtraction is so helpful. That would be a way of doing the exact same thing in that context. The point of that, it seems, maybe it seems irrelevant, but it's very important. David is expressing gratitude towards a very specific God. This isn't a bland, distant God of the philosophers. This is a God that David has grown to know and love and a God that David knows by name. And the glory of that God that David is able to call by name extends to the farthest most reaches of the earth. He's not a tribal deity. Just because David can know him in the deepest, darkest moments of his personal experience, doesn't mean that that very God doesn't reign over the whole earth. And David can say, O God, my Lord, Your name is majestic. Your name is majestic in all the earth. This is not a disinterested, just ritual motion of worship. This is a zealous excitement of of a God that has broken into David's world and delivered him numerous times. And so David says the word how, how majestic is your name? When we say how in that kind of a context, you're trying to express something with exuberance and with excitement, and that's what he's doing. So David is passionately expressing the fame and honor of his personal king. Secondly, second thing I think you see here, super simple again, God's majesty is recognizable in this world because he has been profuse in his creation. In this passage, I think there's something that's just sort of assumed. David is assuming that the readers of his psalm are going to already believe something. He's not going to have to convince them of this thing. There's something that's assumed here. And that's the simple fact that he just assumes that his readers are astounded with the beauty of creation in the same way that he is. The readers of this psalm are just assumed to be people that would revel in the unbelievable expanse of this earth. For David, the moon and the stars and the the livestock of this earth are unbelievable realities, and he just assumes that they would be that way for us. 
So David, if that's true for him, what I think that means is that he's clearly saturated with the truths that the first, real simply, that the first few chapters of the book of Genesis tell us. The first few chapters of the book of Genesis just have the Bible's creation story in them. His understanding of the nature of God, David's I mean, is rooted deeply in the story of creation that we draw, that we find in our Bibles. And so David is drawn into this worship that he's experiencing in Psalm 8 through his astonishment at the grandeur of creation. And also, I think, through the security that he feels knowing that his personal God, the God that he knows, the God that he can call by name, is the one that made all things and then made all things in dignified humanity. Now, when I think of the first few chapters of the book of Genesis, and then when I think of the Psalms, the first thing that comes to my mind from a literary standpoint, I guess, is rhythm. You see rhythm all over the book of the Psalms, and you see rhythm in the first few chapters of Genesis. And when I try to understand rhythm, the first thing my mind goes to as a father is children's books. When you, this is your Father's Day thing that I'll say in the sermon, it's the only thing that'll be relevant for fathers. But I've been a dad for four and a half years, and one of the things that happens when you become a dad is your, your house becomes chocked full of children's books. I know where maybe three or four percent where those books came from. I have no idea. But you just have kids and books show up. And something else astonishing happens with children's books. The books that your kids like are the, ex- gener- at least in my experience, are the exact opposite of the books that you want them to like. And the books that they like are totally perplexing. So for Sully, for Sully, Sully always likes books that are written about movies that he's already seen, which is like, to me, just sacrilege. So when he comes and wants me to read a book, it's the Toy Story 3 book. Now, I know that movies are made after books, but for kids, books are made after movies, which is doubly bad. And so Sully will come and, you know, Dad, read me Toy Story 3 or read me Ninja Turtles or whatever. Now, Jesse is different. Jesse loves that one of his favorite book right now is this book called But Not the Hippopotamus. And so it's like a hog and a frog cavort in the bog, but not the hippopotamus. A cat and two rats are trying on hats, but not the hippopotamus. And the whole thing is but um but um but um but um but um rhyme rhyme. Okay? But there's no plot. It's totally senseless. <laughs> It's just these rhymes. Children's books, if you can rhyme, they're easy to write, you know. So that's Jesse's thing. And Jesse's other favorite book is, of course, the book that has been one of the favorites for generations untold. And that is, of course, Goodnight Moon, right? Now, Goodnight Moon is the most perplexing children's book of them all because it does nothing. All you do in that book is wander around a room and say, there's the mittens, there's the bowl full of mush, there's the such and such. And then you exit the room 
and you say, or you go to bed, good night, mush, good night, you know, kittens, good night, mittens, good night, cow jumping over the moon. It's totally, totally, totally absurd. But what is it about good night, moon that works? I mean, the question is obviously, why have generations upon generations upon generations of children been rocked to sleep for the rest of the night saying, just hearing their parents saying good night mittens. How can that happen, right? What happens because of the rhythm? It's because but um but um but um soothes every single person in this room when they're a child. And when you become a grown-up like David who penned Psalm 8, Genesis 1 and 2 can become comforting that in that same way. God made this and then he made this and then he made this and he made this and he called it all very good. And the rhythm knowing that the God that made the whole universe did it so effortlessly makes can sing you to sleep. And that Genesis 1 and 2 has the same understatement that that good night moon does as well. And so does Psalm 8 at certain parts. In Genesis 1 verse 16 the writer says he also made the stars totally casually. Untold billions of nuclear furnaces pierce the darkness of space, spewing forth the heat, radiation, radio waves, and blazing light that result from their hydrogen helium fission. The ancients maybe didn't know what stars were precisely or how many of them there are, but now we're staggered to know the multiplicity of them that are out there. Yellow suns, red giants, blue stars, and binary systems. Yet God created them all without breaking a sweat. David calls those things the work of God's fingers. But that's part of the nature of Genesis 1 and Psalm 8 to show the enormous power that God had that allowed God to do it all. God is not stingy in creating the world that you inhabit, but wildly lavish. He fills the oceans with fish, blankets the skies with birds, and sets the earth spinning with swarming swarms of different insects and every kind of land animal. This small narrative at the beginning of our Bibles permeates and it saturates everything that comes after it. And for David, God's love for his creation lights the world from within and makes all things glow with a kind of blessed and sacred Radiance. When you think about this and when you look out of your windows, how can you do anything more that in, in a kind of exhausted reverence say, what is man? And that's where David is, right? That's his posture. And that's what we're to be apprentices under. So finally, man stands between God and creation and rules over creation for God's sake, even though he, man, and I mean humanity, does not seem immediately fit to do so. So David here wants the people of God to understand that God has done something unique in preferring man to God, all of the rest of God's creation. And, I, and why? I mean, the question that we're left with is, why? Why does God need man to rule over creation? And why choose man to begin with? What's the answer to that? I don't think the answer to that can be man is so in, like amazing 
in and of themselves that they were the perfect choice for God to select. I think Paul gets it closer in 1 Corinthians when he said, God's used the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has a design, a very specific design in mind behind using man to do what he's doing. And I think it's simply this. God gave man to rule over creation as a free and unwarranted gift. There's nothing intrinsic to man in general that he gives them the right to be ruler over creation. God's gifts to sinners are rich and free, right? Creation and salvation both come from God and they're both unmerited. It's true that man and woman control the rest of creation and that in God letting man do that, He's crowned them with glory and honor, but surely even that's a gift of God. That's such a crucial part of Psalm 8 because it gets us right to the gospel. Our lives are to be lives of servanthood. That's what God's called us to, and that's how man gets its dignity and God gets His glory. Men are weak, but they're weak in Christ because God has chosen that He is the one that gets the praise rather than us. God is more majestic because He uses children to triumph over His enemies and is more majestic because He uses weak men and women to rule over His creation. God's own Son, of course, has come and lived among us, triumphing over the enemies of God through the supreme act of human humiliation. So, in conclusion... What we want to leave here with, I think, is just the simple realization that God has called you, the Christian, to sacrificial service for His glory. It's represented again and again and again through the whole Bible that God has ordained that His people serve the world and rule the world through sacrifice. Look in verse 2 again. God defeats His enemies, but He does it through the power of infants and the lips of of children. God gets more glory when people deemed to be insignificant by the world accomplish his purpose. If there was somebody out there that was not a sinner, if there was a person out there whose sin was very small, them doing God's bidding would accomplish zero for God because that person would get all the glory and God would get none. So God's calling you to sacrificial service for His glory, but here's the really, 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 really good news about that. You don't need the devotional astuteness of the David that wrote Psalm 8 or the wild career of someone like the Apostle Paul to image forth the sacrificial service that Christ asked for from us. We don't need to be shipwrecked or lowered in a basket from a city wall. We don't need to be chased all over a nation by a king who wants to kill us to recognize our weakness, even without the physical dangers of any of the stories in the Bible that we look up to. Anyone who throws themselves into the work of the Christian ministry with any kind of like even half the dedication of the Apostle Paul or David will experience the weakness that we're talking about. The times when problems seem insoluble, the times of weariness from sheer overwork, the times of depression when there seem to be absolutely zero results out of your diligence, 
the emotional exhaustion which spiritual concern for someone else brings, be that a friend, a dad, be that a son, be that a neighbor, be that any other kind of relative, be that just another person in this church. We know that the Christian life comes with unbelievable trials, but for everyone in this room, 99.9% of the time, those trials take on a very, very ordinary shape. But that's what we're made for. We were made to, in our weakness, demonstrate the power of the cross of Christ in such ordinary, in plain ways, ways that are so ordinary, you may not think they're even worth mentioning. But God, when God is trusted in, when confession of sin and repentance are still being carried out, when ministry is still being carried out all by weak and exhausted people, God is glorified. And we know that God revels in that kind of Christian living Why? Because Jesus did. I'm convinced, y'all, that most of my own personal anxiety and depression comes from a very big difficulty of embracing this reality. I don't know, most of the time, I don't know what I'm made for. We spend so much time jockeying for position, hoping someone will notice something that's intrinsic to who we are as people and recognize that and give us a slap on the back because of it. But that's the exact opposite of what Psalm 8 says. God's name is the name that's majestic. We were born to look away from ourselves and towards God. We were born to declare His majesty and not our own, to say with our mouths and with our lives, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. Let's pray together. Father, will you now bring us low, bring us low before your glory and low, so as to follow the example of our Savior. If there are any in here, Father, who are enemies of you today, will you draw them to yourself? Father, make us all as little children and establish strength out of our mouths. Remind us of the beauty of your creation, this wonderful gift you have given us, and let creation be a staggering reminder for every one of us here just how small we are. The more we elevate ourselves, Lord, the sillier we look. We want to see you lifted high and not ourselves. In your name we pray. Amen.